One of my mother's finest traits was that she never met a stranger. She was ready and interested to talk to anyone and everyone wherever she went. For many years, she did clerical work for the Central County School Offices in Fairfax County, and at her funeral, one of the most striking features was the diversity of those in attendance, which included not only family and friends and her immediate colleagues, but it included coworkers from custodians to senior administrators, people of all backgrounds, social statuses, and races who had been welcomed in as a part of her life. At holidays, she would always take in strays for dinner, friends of my brothers who weren't able to be with their families for Easter or Thanksgiving, or they were always welcome in our house. If it was Easter, they would even get an Easter basket. Even Melanie was astray one year as a guest of my brother. And when someone had eaten with us, they were practically family. My mother looked after their well-being and interests almost as fiercely as she looked after ours. She had an extraordinary gift for welcoming people. Welcoming people in, making them feel at home, and looking after them is the first pillar of our 2020 vision. Last week, I introduced the vision of Lake Ridge Baptist as God's lighthouse, the shining the light of Jesus Christ throughout the neighborhoods around us. This vision will be achieved through three pillars, welcoming in, building up, and reaching out, which are the way that Lake Ridge Baptist will live the Great Commission. Welcoming in. We are a living, vibrant community of faith, renowned for our devoted love for God, each other, and for our neighbors. Building up. We are a community of faith in which each person is continuously growing in Christ. And reaching out. We are a community of faith in which every disciple is compelled by their love of Christ to share the good news indiscriminately. Today we begin exploring this vision more deeply by discussing the first pillar. I want each of us to have a common understanding and even excitement about these pillars and their biblical foundation so that we are all prepared to move out quickly on making this vision a reality. When we think about welcoming in, we naturally tend to picture the greeting that a newcomer receives on their very first visit, but it is so much richer than that. Welcoming in is about each person being welcomed in every time, especially during the darkest, most painful and discouraging seasons of life. It's about maximizing our historically warm and caring culture in this community of faith and making it one where we are welcoming all people every day creating a community of faith famous for our love of God, one another, and our neighbors. It's about how we embrace the presence of, this Lord, of the Lord in this place and how we introduce ourselves and this community of faith to those outside these walls. It's about how we welcome newcomers not only into our community, but into our lives, into our hearts, and eventually, God willing, into the family of God. You have the full description of the pillar on the card in your bulletin. I would urge you to keep it, to take it home, put it on your refrigerator. Don't just recycle it. There'll be two more coming in, in the next few weeks. We are a living, vibrant community of faith, renowned for our devoted love for God, each other, and for our neighbors. We each purposely invest in others by building authentic relationships seizing every opportunity to invite others to be a part of our community, making newcomers feel welcome and at home, and caring for each other through action, not word alone. 
this pillar unites two crucial scripture passages, the great commandment and Christ's new commandment. Today we consider the great commandment and two welcoming in initiatives closely tied to living the great commandment. Next week we'll discuss Christ's new commandment and two welcoming in initiatives that are closely aligned to living the new commandment as a body of believers. Let me say just a few words about this phrase that you see in each of the pillars and throughout the vision document, this phrase, community of faith. Why didn't we just say church? We had several reasons for it. None of them had to do with getting paid by the word, and I want to highlight two. One is that people have a tendency to picture a building when they hear the word church. They just, we can't help it. We are so acclimated to it in our culture. And this is unfortunate because the biblical word that we translate as church actually describes an assembly of people. And so as a team, we felt led to use a phrase that unmistakably referred to people, not buildings. And we will absolutely leverage every aspect of this building in the coming coming years. In fact, if you look in the vision, we even suggest goals to improve our facility, to more effectively welcome in, build up, and reach out. But because the church is so much more than a building, we didn't want anyone to think that this vision was only about the future and fate of a building. This vision is about people, about the body of Christ. And furthermore, referring to the church can leave people unclear about who's included in the vision. Who are we welcoming in and loving? Is it just those who eventually join? Is it those who are already members? Is it just for Baptists? Is it only for those who will worship with us on Sunday mornings? And the answer is no. We will welcome in, build up, and reach out to people who may first enter our community through home Bible studies or or Team Kid, Refuge, or Encounter Jesus on Wednesday night. We want to shine the light of Christ to people for whom a church building initially represents a massive psychological barrier. Our community of faith includes students who only come on Wednesday nights, and and it happily includes your neighbor who's willing to study the Bible in your house long before he or she would ever consider darkening the door of our church. We love them all. We reach out to them. We welcome them in and we build them up. That's our community of faith. So why and how do we welcome people in, particularly people who are skeptical, who are hostile, who have been hurt by churches and are wary of them, or people who are unbelieving? And the answer lies in this morning's focal passage, Matthew chapter 22. Verses 34 to 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now back in January, we discussed a similar passage from the Gospel of Luke. Based on the context, I believe that this is a different conversation about the same subject. How to weigh and sift through all the Old Testament law and writings and identify one greatest commandment. If you look at historical rabbinical writings from this time, it appears this was a common discussion topic, and so Jesus had a consistent answer whenever the subject came up. What we see in this passage is that the enemies of Jesus were lining up. They were 
they were going one group at a time to try and, and trap him, to test him and, and try and get him to make a mistake that would either destroy his popularity or provide an excuse to arrest or kill him. The Herodians have had a chance, the Sadducees have had a chance, and now this Pharisee challenges Jesus to identify the most important commandment in the Old Testament. And Jesus responds with two, and he says that these are the foundation on, on which all the Old Testament is built. That we must love God with all our being and our neighbors as ourselves. First, we must love God with all our being. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this word that's translated three times as all is the Greek word for whole. Complete, entire. So we're to love God with the whole of our hearts, with our entire souls, with our complete minds, without division or distraction. We're to love God first and foremost in all aspects of our lives. Jesus says this is the great and first commandment. It encapsulates the reverence and absolute centrality of God that is found in the first four commandments. And it doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to love other things, that we're not allowed to love other things. We must love our spouses and our children and our grandchildren. We should love our parents, and, and we might love our jobs or our pets. But we must not ever permit these things to divide our attention from our love for God, so that we are just leaving God the scraps of our heart, our mind, or our soul. So how do we love God first and foremost? And do we? Do we, as a people, love God first and foremost? Do we love Him more than our family, friends, career, home, retirement, hobbies, sports? Do we, as a church, love Him more than our history, our traditions, our way of how we've always done things, the way we've organized our ministries? This is very challenging because we are in a culture that is blessed, that is overflowing with things for us to love, and a culture that is constantly preaching to us a gospel of balance, that it's okay to love God, but we should only love Him with a limited percentage of our hearts, minds, and souls, that's in a proper balance and proportion with other things like family and country and, and career. Well, that's not what Jesus said. The commandment is to love God with everything, first and foremost. How do we move from not loving God, which was certainly true at some point in our life before we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, to, to loving Him some, to reaching towards this, this commandment, this standard that Jesus has set, loving Him fully and wholeheartedly? Well, it's most certainly a work of the Holy Spirit that changes us, that transforms our hearts, our minds, and souls. But it's one that typically occurs in tandem with the activities described in the second building up initiative in the vision. One that teaches and encourages the daily use of classic spiritual practices. You see, we aren't likely to fall madly, passionately, and deeply in love with God based on only one hour a week on Sunday mornings, no matter how many years we faithfully come to church. If I may draw an analogy for marriage, we are unlikely to either become madly, passionately, and deeply in love with our spouse or stay that way if we are only giving our spouse one hour a week of attention. 
Our love for God typically grows throughout our lives in proportion to the time that we spend in private reading of his word and prayer, activities like journaling and meditating upon his qualities and his truths. But nonetheless, for all of these private activities, one of the most important ways we express our love for God, and one that is certainly important to how we grow in our love for God, is in the way that we worship together as a community of faith. This is an integral part of welcoming in because it's what we're welcoming people into. The collective worship of God is our, our central celebration as a community. And so as we see this relationship of the private and the public, of the building up and the welcoming in, we are seeing an illustration of one of the many ways that the three pillars of this vision reinforce one another. Jesus gives us some specifics on how to love God. Not just that's first and foremost, but we are to love him with every part of our being. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's describing loving God with our hearts, our emotions and feelings. Loving God with our minds, our knowledge, intellect and understanding. And loving God with our soul, our inmost essence. This is complete total, multifaceted love for God with every aspect of our being. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we naturally tend to be unbalanced in the way that we love God. So perhaps our love is primarily emotional. We, get, we feel passion and excitement when we think about God. We look forward to, to loud, raucous, vibrant worship and, 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 and are so fired up by that. But we don't really want to read or learn more about him. And so we don't truly understand him or who he is. This is love, but it's an unbalanced love. It would be like telling our spouse that we're, we're madly, passionately in love with them, but we're not that interested in learning the details of their life. Or perhaps we, the sort of person who loves filling our minds with knowledge about God and, and his word and his truths, but we don't feel very much passion for him deep within our souls. Again, this is love, but it's an unbalanced love. Uh, to continue that analogy from marriage, it's like telling our spouse that, that we love to know all the facts about his or her life, but we're just not really that into him or her. So how would you describe your current love for God? Is it primarily emotional? Primarily intellectual? Or perhaps it's mostly inside your soul. It's something that gives you quiet comfort and satisfaction, but has very little outward expression. For many years, I tended to focus on the intellectual side of, of loving God and, and sort of disdained the emotional side. I thought that was the path to weak theology and, and a poor understanding of God. But the more I read the Word of God and the more I thought about all that God had done for me in sending His Son to, to rescue me from the mess of sin that I was in, and the more I thought about Christ's suffering and His, his brutal death, and his glorious resurrection from the dead. So that through him, through faith in him, my sins were forgiven and I was set free. Well, the more I realized that a purely intellectual response just was inadequate for all that had been done for me. I think we see this clearly as we read Scripture, because on the one hand, we encounter the soaring emotional highs and the depths of despair of David writing in the Psalms. And on the other hand, we see the brilliant theological reasoning of Paul in his letters, but, 
But nonetheless, as we read Paul, what do we see? We see him spontaneously burst into praise and worship, even as he's writing, because he's so overwhelmed deep in his soul by the love and the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. So where are you on the spectrum of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Wherever you are weakest, I guarantee that your relationship with God will deepen and mature if you cultivate that area. So if you need help with your heart, with getting excited about God, spend time reading the Psalms. And don't, don't do it with an idea for, for collecting facts about the Psalms, but do it with an eye towards the way that the writers express their feelings to and about God. And then begin to imitate that in your own prayer life and, and see if your feelings don't begin to follow. Or if you need help with your intellect, invest in some theology. It doesn't have to hurt. You can begin with a C.S. Lewis or a Tim Keller and then, and then really concentrate on understanding the New Testament epistles and, and drawing the threads of reasoning, that these letters that are so packed with doctrinal truth. And wherever you are in your, in your journey and in your relationship and in your style of love, take time to think about the gospel as you have experienced it. What Christ has done for you and done in you. And then let the mercy and love of God soak into your soul. It's his love for God that must fuel our first initiative under welcoming in. To foster devoted love for God through renewed, vibrant, dynamic corporate worship. As I mentioned, much of our love for God grows in private, but nonetheless, how we express it publicly is very important. It is also important to how we grow in our love for God. And as I said, it is that central celebration, and so we will look at all aspects of how and when we conduct corporate worship gatherings. And I truly have no idea what will result from this. Certainly there will be music, prayer, and the proclamation of God's words. These are the required elements, if you will. I'm also confident that some of you will be very happy with whatever the outcome is. Some of you will be disappointed, and some may even be angry. And as real and valid as those feelings will be, I respectfully submit that each represents a flawed perspective about worship. Because worship fundamentally isn't about what we do up here on the platform. It's about what you do in your hearts and minds and souls as you sit or stand at your seats each week. Worship isn't an experience, concert, lecture, or show. Worship isn't a noun that we sit back and enjoy. It is a verb for each and every one of us in this room to perform if we love Jesus. So do you put your whole heart, mind, and soul into worshiping and praising God when we sing? As you sing, are you singing with emotion? Are you feeling what the writer felt as he's right, he or she wrote the song? As you sing the words, are you thinking about the truths that they express? There is a lot of good truth in all the songs we sing. And as you think about those truths, are you cherishing them and letting them soak into your very being? What about when we pray? Are you just sitting back and listening, or are you, are you again thinking on the words and, and feeling the emotions and letting these words soak into your soul? What about when we preach? Once we understand the nature of worship and we realize that, that we can dislike the music or the setting and yet still worship profoundly, 
It's incredibly changing. It's transforming. This is one of the most life-changing truths I ever realized, that it was my responsibility to worship. Not someone else's responsibility to worship for me or not someone else's responsibility to make me worship. And yes, the talented team up front certainly can foster that worship. They can make it easier for me, and that is the objective of this initiative, but it is my responsibility. If Niall Radcliffe were here, he could tell you about incredibly rich worship that he experienced in Africa. Worship that blows the doors off most worship in the United States. And here it was amongst primitive conditions. No technology, no sound systems, no walls, I think. Just an overflowing passion and love for the Lord in each and every believer who is present. That's a part of what I pray for each Sunday before I leave home, that each of us would come to truly worship mind, soul, and heart in spirit and in truth. The second part of the great commandment is that we must love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. Jesus continued, and a second is like it, meaning of comparable importance and magnitude. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Since I recently preached on a comparable passage, I'd like to just briefly mention some of the qualities of that love that we discovered as we dug into that particular passage in Luke. Our love for our neighbor must be intentional, practical, thorough, and without discrimination. And it will be inconvenient and costly in terms of time and treasure. And this should not be a surprise for us at all if we just think about the way that we love ourselves. We feed and clothe ourselves. We educate and improve ourselves. We care for, nurture, and cultivate ourselves. When it comes to ourselves, our love is clearly practical, costly, thorough, time-consuming, and yet, somehow, we usually manage to make it a priority. Well, Jesus commands us to do the same for others, including those who aren't yet part of our community of faith. And so our neighbors are out there in all directions around this building, and I assure you they need love that is real, practical, intentional, and thorough. Though writing about our care for one another, I think it's important nonetheless that we heed the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's at the heart of the fourth initiative for welcoming in. Be the light of Christ by actively and sacrificially loving and caring for our neighbors. There are lots of implications of this initiative, that's for sure. But most particularly at the basics, we have to really know our neighbors. You see, it's only as we truly get to know people that we can possibly know how to love them. And so we must know our neighbors at Rockledge Elementary, at Westminster, at River Ridge, at Thousand Oaks, and off Harbor Drive. We've got to see their needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual, and be ready to respond, not just talk about responding. Think about how quickly we take care of business when we have a problem. Now remember that we're supposed to love our neighbors the same way. We must be prepared to sacrifice real time, energy, and treasure in loving and caring for our neighbors, all of our neighbors, even the unlovable ones. At times, it's going to be exhilarating. We will share and celebrate. But at other times, it will be exhausting 
discouraging, draining, and costly. Nonetheless, we're called to love each of our neighbors as we would love ourselves. And that doesn't follow any convenient routine or schedule. The lighthouse must shine at all times, not simply when it's convenient for the light keepers inside. Now, we love like this because we are commanded to. That is clear. But we also choose to love like this because of the astonishing love the creator of the universe demonstrated towards us. Long before we ever had the slightest positive thought towards him. That love of God, that good news of Jesus Christ, is what drives us outward and upward with every part of our being. It's what compels us to welcome in, just as God has welcomed us in to his family, despite our sin, shame, guilt, failure, mess, and mistakes. That's real love. That's real welcoming, and that's who we're called to be. As we conclude, I invite you to respond as God is leading you. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, if not, then I urge you to do so today. Because you've heard of his great love for you, a love that invites you to accept the free gift of forgiveness and grace and mercy and welcome offered through faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God. And so if that's a gift you'd like to accept today or one you have accepted recently, I invite you to come forward and meet Pastor Neil in the front of the church as we sing. Or perhaps you feel God calling you to set down roots here in this community of faith because you're excited about God's vision for Lake Ridge Baptist Church. You want to be a part of this movement for Christ in this neighborhood. Well, if so, we'd love to have you formally declare that membership, and I invite you to come forward as well. And for everyone else, I pray that as, as we sing and as we pray to close this service out, that you would commit every part of your mind, heart, and soul into these activities, into loving and worshiping God, and that this love would empower you to take his love out to our neighbors in the coming days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by your great love for us, love that existed long before we ever considered feeling the slightest positive feeling towards you. When we were still enemies of you, you loved us. A love that's overwhelming and sacrificial through your Son, Jesus, Lord. And so, as people who have been saved and washed clean through faith in him, I pray that our hearts would be filled with love for you, a love that would overflow into all the community around us, Lord, that we would indeed love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would be the light shining in this community. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.